Well, this evening, I want us to continue to consider the subject of godly zeal. Godly zeal. Uh, primarily from this verse, just being reminded of the fervency that we're to have for the things of God. Romans 12 verse 11 says, Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We don't want to be spiritually lazy. We want to be fervent. Often that word is the idea of bubbling over. Something that is, uh, again, uh, sometimes we think of boiling over. Um, but fervent in spirit. And then that manifests itself by serving the Lord. Just want to remind you again that I began talking about this subject um, back in February when I preached the message or taught in our Sunday school hour on godly zeal. So you can find that on sermon audio. Uh, and then last month during our prayer meeting, uh, I talked about the marks of Christian zeal. And so that's on sermon audio as well. And I'm using during this time now, beginning last month in our corporate prayer meeting, uh, talking about the marks of Christian zeal, a resource by Joel Beakey and James LaBelle um, called Living Zealously. And so it's a book I would encourage you to get. It was published in 2012. And as you know, Joel Beakey is uh, uh, somewhat of an expert on the Puritans and has done much study and writing regarding the Puritans. And so this resource really takes the subject of zeal, godly Christian zeal, and how to live zealously from the Puritans and compiles it into this resource. Um, so he often will quote uh, the, the Puritans specifically, but where he doesn't quote the Puritans specifically, he's summarizing uh, the teaching of a number of Puritans as they talked about this important subject of living zealously, being zealous for the things of God. And you remember that last month we saw that Beakey uh, defined Christian zeal in this way. Christian zeal is a purposeful stirring and inflaming of the affections. So here we're talking about the affections of the heart. And it's a stirring and inflaming of, of those affections purposely so it's not just something that happens to us we're not just passive in this but we're to purposely be seeking to be stirred up in this way the affections of the heart he says it is a holy passion which like a magnifying glass that con concentrates the sun's rays into a single point of light captures the believer's affections and drives them toward a specific biblical goal and of course the ultimate specific biblical goal is the glory of God hallowed be your name glory to him and so last time we talked about some of the marks of Christian zeal Christian zeal is marked by love for God Christian zeal is ruled by scripture scripture tells us what is true godly zeal and what is not Christian zeal is devoted to good works. It begins with self-examination. It begins at home, we talked about, in our own hearts. But then having examined our own hearts and, and that Christian zeal beginning with us, it then cares about others too. It begins to minister to others and seek to stir up and inflame the hearts of others for love for God in His glory. 
And we saw that Christian zeal finally is marked by being constant. Uh, not ebbs and flows, but there is a constancy to it. And in that sense, really growing as well. We don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want to be cold. We want our Christian godly zeal to be constant. One Puritan wrote this, Can we claim to love God and yet not be zealous for him and against evil? Uh, Evans, the Puritan, wrote this, If we love God, we shall hate evil. And so great is his excellence and sin's evil that if our affections be right set between both, we cannot remain cold and indifferent for the one against, or indifferent for the one against the other. And Beaky writes, without zeal, our Christianity is lifeless and cold. It is no warmer than a painted image of a fire. And so we don't want to be simply a painted image of a fire. We want actual zeal that's, that's full of life, that's again inflamed by love for God and a passion for his glory. And so this evening, to lead us in a time of prayer uh, regarding these things, we want to talk about the motives for Christian zeal. So I want to point out some that Joel Beakey and uh, LaBelle have pointed out as the Puritans taught on this subject, what motivates Christian zeal. We talked about the marks, but here's some of the motives of Christian zeal. First of all, we should be motivated by Christ's purchase. We should be motivated by Christ's purchase. That is his purchase of us with his own blood. Titus 2.14 says, Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous for good works. So we were redeemed for a purpose. Beaky writes in the book, there was a double purpose for Christ's death, namely that we might first be redeemed from sin in all its forms, and second, be ardent in obeying God's voice and keeping covenant. Christ purchased us in order to set us free from bondage to sin and to lead us into the greater freedom of serving God, whose service is perfect freedom. And so we've been redeemed for a specific purpose. Christ gave himself for us. As we consider the giving of the Son of God for us, he did it that we might be redeemed from our sin, but then also then live zealously for the glory of God and be zealous for good works. Beaky writes, from this text, it is clear that Christ's redemption or purchase was not an end in itself. The manner of the purchase and the price that was paid was intended to leave its mark on those for whom he died, that they should be zealous for good works. And so he asked this question, are you zealous for good works? You've been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. They are a path for your feet. Are you zealously walking in them? And so the purpose of, the, of this, again, is, is to examine our hearts. Are we zealous for that for which Christ died for us? To redeem us? 
that we would be a people zealous for good works. Thomas Manton wrote this, they that live at a low rate of holiness cross and disgrace the whole design of the gospel. So again, what the Puritan here is saying is, if we, if it doesn't manifest itself, our redemption in holiness, that we're zealous for good works, we're zealous for sanctification, then we cross, we disgrace the whole design of the gospel. Christ didn't redeem us simply that we would be forgiven our sins. Yes, that is central. But then more that then we would live zealously and be zealous for good deeds. So how then do you live? Has Christ come all this way and stooped so low and suffered so much for nothing? 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver and gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I preached on that passage a number of times, but most recently around the table of the Lord. It's the language of those redeemed from slavery. A man who was enslaved could be set free but another had to come and purchase him and redeem him out of that slavery and he would do so with with money with silver or gold but we've not been redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold Peter says from our feudal way of life but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless first Corinthians 6 verse 20 says you've been bought You've been purchased. And not again with money, but with a great price. The blood of Christ. And therefore, the response should be glorify God in your body. So again, the gospel is not just to redeem you and set you somewhere so that you can just be happy in the forgiveness of your sins and and static so to speak no but so then you could glorify God with all of your life that you would be zealous for him that the gospel in its design would not be disgraced and so we should be motivated by Christ's purchase of us with his own blood but secondly we should be motivated to Christian zeal by Christ's example Christ's example Joel Beakey writes in the book, the son was so zealous for the father's will and glory, so perfectly walking the path prepared beforehand for his feet, and so perfectly declaring the father's doctrine that he could say, I do always those things that please him. Our savior was zealous for God and for the father's glory. And as the second Adam who came to this earth, to fulfill all righteousness for us. We see his zeal for God. We see his zeal for the Father's glory, his zealousness for the Father's house. In fact, John 2 verse 17 tells us that zeal for his Father's house consumed him. Notice the language, it consumed him. Joel Beakey again writes this, zeal for his Father. So consumed Jesus 
that he took every opportunity in public, in private, on a boat, in the fields, in the streets, at the supper table, in the middle of Jerusalem, or on his way through Samaria to proclaim the salvation that he came to accomplish for his father. Christ was zealous for the Father's glory, and we should be motivated by the example of our Savior. Beaky writes, Christ was aflame with love for souls, aflame with hatred for sin, aflame with compassion for the hurting, aflame with grief for the obstinate, aflame with love for his sheep, and aflame with delight for the Father's will. Where then is your zeal? Consider your relation to the triune God. Is the name of him who was consumed by zeal upon you? Is the spirit of him who was so zealous for the Father's will that he set his face to do it with unwavering determination within you? Is the father of him for whose house he was consumed with zeal your father? Why then are you not zealous? So again, there's a purposing to stir up our hearts being motivated by Christ's example of zealousness, if he was zealous. And yes, our Savior is also our example for how to live to the glory of the Father. And so we should be motivated by Christ's purchase of us, by his precious blood. We should be motivated by Christ's example. And in probably one month as we're considering these things, we'll consider John chapter 2 and the zeal and even righteous indignation for those who would abuse the Father's house and bring dishonor to him. But thirdly, we should be motivated by unbelievers. The Puritans would speak of this. We should be motivated by unbelievers. And what I mean by that is unbelievers' pursuit and zeal for things that are ungodly should stir us up to be zealous for things that are godly. John Reynolds, again a Puritan, wrote this, we should be motivated by people who are violent in the ways of sin, lest they serve Satan better than we serve God. People of this world are industrious, vigorous, and resolute in the ways of sin, while we are negligent, cold, and inconstant in the service of righteousness. They disregard all reproofs and counsel. They grieve friends and relatives who stand in their way. They readily venture into great dangers. They waste their wealth. They injure their bodies. And in the end, die as martyrs to lust and sin. They are zealous in following the way to hell while many of us are sluggish on the path to heaven. They break body and bone for hell, while we loathe to break flesh and skin for glory. People are zealous for their sin, and we once were among them. We once walked in that foolishness, and we're on that path of unrighteousness. Before we were redeemed, and I recall my own days, how I pursued zealously. I wasn't, I was very purposeful. I wasn't lazy in pursuing sin. And those who are still unbelievers are zealous for their sin and they're pursuing it in the ways of the world and in the ways of Satan. 
we should be motivated to serve God with more zeal and vigor than those who serve Satan. And so that should be motivating to us as well. We should even consider how we once lived and think about the zealousness we had for sin. And now we should have greater zealousness for righteousness. And so we should be motivated by unbelievers. Fourthly, we should be motivated the Christian zeal by the passing of time. Again, quoting in the book, some of us may have come to the Lord after many years of pursuing the lusts of the world. Many years must be pinned down as good for nothing or worse than nothing, consumed in the way to death and destruction. Others of us may have served the Lord for many years, but with careless, lazy work at the pace of a snail. Consider how much time has been wasted. So the passing of time, when we consider days past, when I consider the 17 years of my life as an unbeliever, in particular my teenage years of pursuing sin, and the time that I spent in my sin, now I should say the rest of my life should be to the glory of God. And then when we consider the passing of time in our lives, in times that we weren't as aflame for the things of God as we should be, Time that sometimes has been wasted. It should stir us up. Time is passing. Not many years or even sometimes days or maybe even hours, we don't know, are left in the service of God. So we should be motivated while I have breath to serve him with zeal and with great love and fervor. Passing of time. Sometimes when we're young, we, we think, oh, I have many years to serve God, and we really don't know what should happen to in the passing of time. And I find this to be the case in my own life. We realize that just as the clock ticks, so to speak, as the days on the calendar pass and the months pass and the years pass, one thing I know for sure is my salvation is nearer than when I first believed. I'm, I'm closer to heaven than I was when I was saved at 17. I don't know my last day. I don't know the days he has numbered for me. But I know it's closer and with every passing day. And so the passing of time, there should be a sober spirit, a sense of urgency. I think of Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 17. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish. Don't live foolishly and carelessly, but understand what the will of the Lord is and live in light of that. Again, Thomas Manton wrote this. How urgent it is then to redeem the time that is still before us. Do we expect the Lord to be pleased with our laziness? Do we expect him not to care if we fold our hands and slumber? How can we continue to waste time when so much has already passed? We have wasted the vigor of our youth in sin, ease, and laziness. We have little left for the Lord but the dregs of old age. These dregs may yet live but only if breathed on and stoked into life by zeal. 
It may be that you have wasted your youth and can see that life's day is far spent and the night is at hand. Yes, the day is nearly spent, but it is yet to be spent. So rise. You can hear the urgency. Thomas Manton is trying to purposely stir us up. Gird up your loins and run the race that is set before you. The battle still rages. The warriors still cry. With the might of the horse and the swiftness of the deer, make haste to join the ranks. Press forward to the front lines and fight with those who are so consumed with zeal for the Lord of hosts that they speak neither of age nor of remaining time, but give themselves to the battle as if they had their full might. Now is the time when you should mend your pace, double your diligence, and be zealous for the Lord your God. Be motivated by the passing of time and use your time wisely, understanding what the will of the Lord is. Another motivation is this, we should be motivated by the enemy of our faith. We should be motivated by the enemy of our faith. Again, the book, in the book, Beaky writes, How zealous is the devil in his rage against us, not only prowling around like a lion with every intent to devour us, but also lurking near us in all that we do. He stalks us to our workplaces, play places, eating places, praying places, and worship places. He waits for us to turn our heads, lower our defenses, and fall asleep. And then he strikes us with all the force at his command. We saw this morning the book of Job. He's active. He was active against Job. Satan and his demons are zealous to make you fall. So we should be motivated by this enemy of our faith. Motivated to be zealous lest we fall prey to him. Thomas Manton again said this, Birds are seldom taken in their flight, but when they rest and pitch. So Satan has no advantage against us when we are upon our course and wing, when we make speed to heaven and are zealous and earnest in our flight. As sure as we begin cooling in our affection, Satan will strike in subtle ways, even by coddling us to death. You get the picture here that that a bird is seldom taken in flight. As long as we're busy, zealous for the things of the Lord, zealous for good deeds, then we're less susceptible. It's when we pitch ourselves and we're just waiting and now inactive. Another Puritan, Christopher Love, asked, Shall we not be as violent to save our souls as the devil is to damn them? Sometimes we don't have equal zeal to to pursue the things of God and to be saved from our enemy. Then, Then he has zeal to condemn us and to make us fall. So again, these very penetrating questions. Where then is your zeal? Can you pause knowing that Satan is ready to torch the staff upon which you lean? Can you draw back from the battle when the enemy's every breath rages with the might of a host of evil? Can you quit throwing water upon the fire of your sin when Satan himself has charge of the bellows? 
He who rages against you cannot be underestimated. He is but a creature, yes, but the place from which he fell was higher than the place where you now stand. And in the providence and wisdom of God, this monster has retained many of his natural advantages, which makes him stronger, more enduring, more patient, and more zealous than you. What will you do without Christian zeal? Do you dare to face him in your natural strength? You will be sorely defeated. His zeal is set on fire by hell and can only be quenched by the heavenly fire of God-given sacred zeal, which is grounded in our great Savior and Lord. Thanks be to God that our Savior is stronger than the devil, for he is Lord, whereas the devil is only a fallen angel. Unlike the devil, our Savior is omniscient and omnipotent. He is able to shield us, put a hedge about us, hide us in the palm of his hand, and keep us in his pavilion. He will deliver us from all the power of the devil and preserve us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. We dare not forget this enemy of our souls that we might stand firm against the devil and his schemes. So we should be motivated by the enemy of our faith and consider his great power and might that is greater than ours, but never forget the great power of God at work in us. We should also be motivated by our weaknesses Beaky writes, we should be motivated by knowing that the duties to which the Lord calls us requires more than we can do in our own strength. We are to love the Lord with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to keep the Lord ever before our eyes and not covet our neighbor's wife or goods. We are to think upon things that are holy, just, and good. We must not give way to vain and sinful thoughts, but take every thought captive to Christ. We are to be truthful with our neighbor and season our words with grace. We must not allow any corrupt talk to come out of our mouths. We are to guard our hearts with diligence and set our affections upon things above where Christ is. We are to obey these commands not once or occasionally, but continuously. We are to obey God with all our might. In short, we are to be Christ-like in thought, word, deed, and emotion. All of this is impossible for us to do. Yet the Lord calls us to nothing less. We understand how can we do this? We are weak. But we have a powerful Savior and an omnipotent Holy Spirit who indwells us in an omnipotent God who is at work in us. And so we need to pursue Christian zeal, motivated by how weak we are. How can we grow in love for God? How can we grow in holiness without this godly zeal? And so as we recognize our weakness, and it stirs us up to rely upon His power and His strength, to stir up our hearts, to zealousness. And then finally, we should be motivated 
to Christian zeal by the danger of coldness and the danger of the repugnance of a lukewarm heart before God. You don't want to be cold before God and lukewarm toward the things of God. It doesn't please our God. Revelation, he says, if you're lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. And his hatred and repugnance toward lukewarmness should motivate us because we desire to please him. So again, these words from the book, either we are zealous for God or we are odious to God. Where do you stand? And Joel Beakey in the book says, answer the following questions posed by John Reynolds, a Puritan. Did Christ descend into our mortal flesh that we should be unconcerned whether we be translated from the world and go to his glory or not? Did he abase himself and make himself of no reputation that we might be indifferent towards his name and his honor? Did he employ 30 years on earth in an unwearied zeal for his father's glory to excuse us from being zealous? Did he lay down his life for our salvation that we may be unconcerned? How contradictory to all his love and work is our lukewarmness in his ways. What ingratitude to him is contained in the bowels of it? What contempt does it pour upon his blood and grace, upon his light and revelation, as if we looked upon them as all unnecessary things? Where then is your zeal? Are you so lukewarm in spirit that you invite God's rebuke? Are you indifferent about your readiness to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment? Are you blasé about the call to holiness, not caring whether you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, whether you put off sin or whether you take up the duties he gives you? Thomas Manton said, you do not worship the vanities of the Gentiles. Therefore, be not as they are, dead, cold, careless, You worship the living God and he is to be served with life, zeal, and strength of affection. And so we want to be those who don't bring upon the displeasure of our God. We want to be motivated by the danger of the coldness of heart. And so again, we see these are some of the motives to Christian zeal. And so tonight, I want us to pray in light of this again and and want us to pray for for zealousness, to be zealous for God and his glory. Hallowed be his name, to be zealous for holiness, to be zealous to do what Pastor Ernest has been teaching on for some time in the mortification of sin, that we would have a holy zeal to put sin to death, a holy hatred of it. I've preached in Romans 12 during this corporate prayer time. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. God, give us zealousness against our our sin. And so let's intercede for that. This is prayer, not just mentioning a few things, but, but praying fervently in light of what we know the will of God to be. And so again this evening, just ask as I look out at some of the men who are here, lead us in this. 
I would just ask you men to consider your own hearts. One of the things that we as elders pray for and are most concerned about is the state of the souls of the men in this church. For whether or not we're going to be a church, zealous or lukewarm, really hinges upon the men in this body. And so men, let's confess our lack of zeal and plead with God for it in our own lives in the lives of our wives, our children, and this church. So let's intercede. Let's bow our heads together. Men, I would call upon you to humbly go before the throne of grace and plead with him for these things. So let's take a season of prayer and do that now. Father, I pray for my own heart Father, I pray for a greater zeal for you, a greater desire for your glory in all things, for your glory in my own life. Father, I pray that there would be increasing hatred of sin in my own heart, in my own life, in all its forms. I pray that my eyes would be every day focused upon the work of Christ for me, his precious blood shed for me, that I would be zealous for him and zealous for good works and zealous for his glory. Father, I pray that we as men would not be spiritually lazy. Pray that the things that would stir up our hearts would be things that are holy unto you. That we would have holy passions, holy affections. Lord, we know our own frame, we know our own temptations, we know that because of remaining corruption within us, because of the fall, that we are tempted to be spiritually lazy in our vocations and responsibilities that you have called us to, that you have indeed created us for as men and created us for as husbands and as fathers, as laborers, We are prone to be lazy and apathetic and not lead as you have called us to lead in the home and in your church. Father, forgive us for our sins are great. Father, I pray specifically for my own heart, the heart of each of the elders in this church, each of the deacons in this church, and every man in this church, every young man in this church. Lord, that we would be zealous for you. Father, I pray that we would stir one another up to love and to good deeds. 
I pray that the things that would consume us are those things that are in accordance with your will in the scripture and that we would not be foolish but that we would be those who are pursuing, understanding, and living what your will is as revealed in scripture. Father, I pray for us as men that we would not be bad examples to those in our homes and in this church. I pray that as our children see our lives, that they would see godly men of great zeal for the things of you. And Lord, I pray that you would use that in the lives of those who do not know you to shine the light upon their own sin that they might turn to Christ. And for those children in our homes and in this church who know you, that would our examples of zealousness for those things that are holy and righteous, Lord, would stir them up. Lord, this is a perverse and foolish generation in a sinful world. We're often drawn to it. And our spiritual senses are often deadened. Father, I pray that we would purposely stir up our own affections for you. And that this would primarily be through considering our Savior. We would humbly bow before him, not only as our Savior, but as our Lord. And the one who indwells us and who strengthens us in the inner man, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.